Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are delighted to welcome Sarah Gay Forden, author of House of Gucci, to our show today. Sarah's book was recently brought to life via film in Ridley Scott's adaptation of House of Gucci, starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, and Al Pacino. Sarah worked as bureau chief and business reporter for Women's Wear Daily in Milan from 1993 to 1999, where she reported on the inside story of Gucci's struggles and successes. During those years, she also wrote about the transformation of Italian family-owned luxury labels, including Armani, Versace, Prada, Ferragamo, etc., into mega brands. And we are thrilled to give you an inside look into why she wrote the book, how she conducted her research, her thoughts on the film, and much more. Thank you for being here, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Let's jump right in. Will you tell us what gave you the idea to write this book in the late 90s? I was the beat reporter um, for Women's Wear Daily at the time. I was covering the business side of the fashion story. I was writing about Armani and Versace and Prada, as you mentioned. But I realized as I was covering the Gucci story that that it was really turning into a saga. And I covered the loss. I covered first Maurizio's vision to relaunch his family company at the top tier of the luxury goods market. And at the time, you know, in the late 80s, when he took over, it had been over licensed, overexposed. It had really kind of gone down market as a brand. It was more a brand that you would see, you know, the toilet kits discounted at Filene's basement rather than, you know, on the shelves of the top stores. So that kind of drew me into the story. And then as I was covering it, Maurizio's dream started to go downhill. So there was a big um, sort of tense story about the conflict between him and his financial investor, Investcor. And, you know, I kept on writing these daily stories um, for Women's Wear Daily. He lost control of the company and uh, Tom Ford and Domenico De Sole became the new kind of custodians of the brand. And then he was murdered. And so that was a shocking moment. Um, in the story. And I was in Milan the day he was murdered, went down to the scene of the crime and then started writing the story and also trying to understand who who could have done such a thing. So as you can see, I had the pieces of the story uh, along the way. And then at a certain point, I realized as the company started being successful, Tom Ford's fashions were hitting it out of the park Uh, The company executed a phenomenally successful IPO. And I realized there was there was actually an upturn to this story, which had been really dominated by tragedy. And I thought, you know, there's there's a there's a narrative arc here that could become a book. It's almost like a novel. Right. Because because all these twists and turns were so extraordinary that if you had tried to make it up, you wouldn't believe it. Like, would it be believable? So I realized in about 1997 that that really there was a book in me and it was going to be the story of Gucci. Ah, that is amazing. It's so, I, di- I didn't know that you were there the day he died in the book when you're talking about all the paparazzi being there and everything. So that, that just adds a whole nother layer to it. And whenever I think about Tom Ford and Gucci, I think about 
Delia had, as we mentioned earlier to you before the recording, she had interned at Versace and then she started her career after she graduated at Barney's on the buying team. And the core team there had come from Gucci with Tom Ford. So Daniela Vitale and Mark Lee. And I feel like there were others that had been there too. And that was always kind of this, this very cool thing, you know, that they brought with them to Barney. So Delia has kind of been saturated in a little, in a small way with the Gucci world. But what we're very curious about is how you did your research. How did you conduct your research with so much information to create the novel or the book? So I did it in stages and I ended up interviewing over a hundred people. The whole project took two years and 18 months of that was, was the reporting and the writing. And, and what I did was, you know, since I wanted to write it like a novel, um, but I knew that I had to have the facts, right? So my idea was to apply the techniques of, of fiction to this true story. But I needed to talk to people who were in the room, who who knew who was around the table and where they were sitting and what they were wearing and, and what expressions they had on their faces. So I needed a lot of detail. And I started out by asking a core crew of people who were involved in the story if they would they would help me even before I, I even you know pitched the idea of the book to a publisher. I asked people like Domenico De Sole and Tom Ford and Don Mello um, and others who were involved if they would help me. And, and they said, yes. So I had a, like my starter dough. <laughs> and then as I, I pitched the, the, the story, I pitched the book. And then as I started reporting into it, I, I spent hours literally sending faxes because in those days uh, we faxed uh, letters to people rather than emailed people. It was sort of early emails days. And I sent many, many faxes to people asking them if they would grant me an interview. So I started sort of pressing out the circle of sources. And then I started calling people. You know, I found people who had worked in the factories with the family. I found people who had managed the stores. I talked to the licensees. I was thinking there are actually something like 10 different narratives in this story because there's there's the early story of the early history. There's the story of Maurizio and Patrizia. There's the story of the trial, you know, the investigation and the trial. There's the story of the murder. Um, there's the story of the takeover battle. And so in each of these threads, I had to find people who who were close to it and, and close enough that, you know, they could remember this kind of granular detail. So it was very, very research intensive. It really sounds like it. How long did it take? The whole project took about two years. Um, I started, wow. I took a leave in 1998 and I delivered, the book was published in 2000. Many parts of that story took off actually while I was researching the past. So I, I started researching the past and I, I re-reported an older book that had come out and I was you know, trying to lock down my interviews. And then in that summer, early summer of 98, the takeover battle started. So there was a big headline in, in the paper that, that Prada had bought 5% of Gucci. And as that story evolved, it turned out Prada ended up turning their shares over to Bernard Arnault, who was launching you know, a takeover. 
And then in May, actually, before the trial started, and I wanted to be in, I knew I wanted to be in the courtroom as much as possible. So the trial lasted about five months. They met three days a week, and they were, you know the judge was really pushing forward because he wanted to, to finish it in a reasonable time frame. And I was in court like three days a week. So that was also very time-consuming. Had to have been so fascinating, so very fascinating. And then... Had there been, I don't feel like there'd been many other books. Like I was just thinking about Tom Ford because he was young then going back and talking to you about his experience, you know, thinking back through it. All of this is such a gem, you know, all this information that, that you gathered. It's really remarkable. Oh, thank you. I mean, the reason that I, I really um, took this deep dive was because, as I said, I wanted to be able to, to um, set the scenes, you know, and, and lay out like who was in the room and what were they mm-hmm. wearing. And that meant many interviews that I did repeated the same basic information about the storyline. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I learned was in each information, in each interview, I would get a new nugget of information. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like the pearl that would, mm-hmm. I would come home with that pearl and I could add it to my necklace of other pearls. Mm-hmm. And that's how I fleshed out the story really like pearl by pearl. Oh, wow. It seems like such a sad story of a family turning to greed, losing their family values. So we wanted to ask if you have any advice for family companies on how to avoid something like this as the company grows. That's a really, really great question. And I, and I really saw Gucci as an emblematic story in many ways, mm-hmm. emblematic of, of struggles that, that many families we're going through, although maybe not on that scale and, 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 you know, with those extreme situations. And it was a very sad story. And actually, that's one reason why I waited so long to, to think about writing a book about it, because I felt like there needed to be a redeeming quality to the story. Otherwise, it was just a very dark story and a very sad story. But the thing that the thing that pulled me in, and I think the thing that's also important for families to think about, families with businesses to think about, is that I think that Maurizio, Maurizio was the key to me. And he was the character, the figure that pulled me in. And it was because he had a vision for the company that I think was the correct vision, was that this brand deserved to be and had every, you know, um, criteria to be at the top of the luxury goods market. And even though Maurizio wasn't able to ultimately execute on that vision, it was the right one. And he had done a lot of the groundwork to clean up the, the brand and to clean up the marketplace. So he cut the cheap GG canvas bags. He brought in Don Mello um, to reposition it. He um, changed the whole product line. You know, he, he created a headquarters in Milan. He knew that they needed to be in Milan. So he did a lot of the right things. Um, and so I think that, that for families, I mean, we can't choose our family, right? We, we are born into, into the family. And so I think it's very important, especially for families that have such a precious asset like a brand, to really do everything possible to try to, to pull together. But then at the same time, to know when it's time to step aside. And so, for example, Maurizio had the vision, but he didn't really have the skills to execute it. 
And if he had found a, a manager that he trusted that was, um, you know, had the, the skill set to to take his vision forward, that probably would have been, you know, if he had made a choice like that, then maybe he the Gucci's would still be in Gucci today. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. know. It's it's easy mm-hmm. to say these things with hindsight. And many companies were struggling with this generational, the challenge mm-hmm. of generational change and how to hand the company down to future generations. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and many were reluctant in those years to bring in outside managers because there was maybe a lack of trust, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm it's sure. tricky. It's very tricky. But certainly we can learn many lessons from the Gucci story. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so interesting from reading your book and then in the movie too, how Maurizio started out sort of shy and unsure of himself. And then he became, he sort of grew into his, his role. Yes. I mean, he, he definitely went from, from the kind of boy man child Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. to being, you know, himself coming into his own, making choices about his marriage and about his company and acquiring a kind of a gravitas that mm-hmm. uh, he lacked in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to have that sometimes when you're running a business like that. Were you happy with the movie? We really loved it. You know, I mean, for a writer to have a director and a cast mm-hmm. of the caliber mm-hmm. of Ridley Scott and mm-hmm. Lady Gaga and Adam Driver and Jeremy, I, I mean, just Al Pacino, it was absolutely, you know, mind blowing to me that this, this project was being taken up at this level. And I think that they, they told, I mean, every, you could see they put mm-hmm. so much passion into it at every level. You know, the, the movie tells a slice of the book, but it's like one mm-hmm. of, it's like mm-hmm. the, key, the key slice, really. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I obviously recommend everybody read the book, too. Some of the questions that you have, unanswered questions maybe in the movie or, or in the book. What was it like going to the premieres? That was, again, that was kind of a surreal, like, <laughs> out-of-body moment. I mean, um, I mean, one of the things about being about writing a book is that there's a lot of very solitary time when you're alone in front of the computer wrestling with the material. And I was, you know, and I was, you know, piles of files and tapes and replaying them. And and it's a very different dynamic and scenario than like being on a red carpet in front of the lights, answering questions about your baby. So, so it's, it was very (laughs) surreal, but really really amazing. And I was just so um, honored and gratified that, that my work, you know, has now yes. getting this kind of attention. Yes, absolutely. What a singular experience. Okay. So the book, when did the book originally come out? 98? It was published in 2000 and then we did a paperback right away in 2001 mm-hmm. that had like an, uh, mm-hmm. the epilogue um, and then we mm-hmm. did the movie tie-in edition, which came out last fall, which has right. an afterword that updates all the highlights from the right. past 20 years since I had written the book. Yes, that's what I had. Uh, that's the one I've been reading. Okay, so that was however many years between the movie coming out and the the book being published and the second, you know, the paperback and everything. So do you have any advice for all of us about being patient? You know, I mean, clearly, clearly 
these projects take time and it's mm-hmm. also about it's about from what I understand and I'm not, you know, a creature of Hollywood, but mm-hmm. um, I listened to some of the interviews with Ridley Scott and he makes the point that for the director, the screenplay is the roadmap and you can't have a good film without a good screenplay. Mm-hmm. And they had been developing the screenplay for several years, but they really felt that they got it when they got Roberto Bentivegna, who was mm-hmm. a young Italian screenplay writer, very talented. He grew up for part of his childhood in Milan. Mm. Uh, so he knew the, the spirit of the city. And right. his mother worked for Armani for like 30 years. So he knew the fashion story. Oh, that's um, great. So he totally got it. And um, I... I consulted on the screenplay. I worked with him and, and really, really just, you know, answering questions, any questions that mm-hmm. he had about, about the story. And it was a great experience. Mm, that's wonderful. You could write a book about all of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fascinating. Sarah, what lessons did you learn or were you reminded of while researching for the book? You know, there's something very basic that I struggled with in the beginning, and it's just being organized about your files and your note taking and your tape recording. And it sounds really like, as I said, really basic, but it's so important. And I can't tell you a couple of times, you know, I thought I had lost like a tape recording or I, you know, hadn't labeled, you know, the exact time or date of a, of a, of an interview in my notes. And I think, Basic organizational skills are super important. So you have to have good a good filing system. I also used a timeline when I started. So I, mm. I that really helped. I just wrote out a timeline of all the major events so that it was mm. easy then for me to go in and plug in things when they happened and understand the connection between the different scenes. Um, so all of that's kind of like nuts and bolts stuff. Did you like plan out your days, like I'm going to write and research. And, you know, once you got to the point where you were writing the book, how did you organize that? So you didn't so go So the whole first part was, was getting the interviews. And then I was doing the interviews. I didn't start writing until later uh, because I wanted to make sure I had all the material first. And I did, I did do like, I did a, a full chapter outline I did a sample chapter because that was part of the the proposal. When I first started writing, I had total writer's block and I spent about a month writing a chapter that I ended up never using as a chapter. I ended up like pillaging all that material and taking it and putting it into three different chapters. So sort of when you asked me, what did I learn? The second thing I was going to say was, was more on the creative side, which is, you really have to get lost in the material, even if it's a nonfiction. And mm-hmm. I found, I thought I was going to just be very disciplined and organized. And I had mapped out this 12 chapter outline. I was just going to write a knockoff mm-hmm. a chapter a month and it was going to be done. Well, it didn't happen that way wow. at all. And, and I found that I had to kind of go through a phase where I was l- losing myself in the narrative and in the characters and trying to figure out like where the truth was mm-hmm. because so many of the characters had opposing viewpoints of the facts. Yeah. And so I had to piece together that the truth was going to be somewhere in the middle. Also depending on like whose interests, you know, were being right, right. by the narrative. So there was a lot of really just parsing and processing the material 
And, and then when I kind of came out the other side, I felt, I realized like that had to, that had to happen as part of the process, but I hadn't really factored that in. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that either. Like you would, I would think someone's telling you a story and you have to realize, okay, now they're telling it this way because sort of interpret it based on who they were and maybe what their reason for telling you the story in the first place was, did you kind of exactly? Wow. That is, that's a whole nother level. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody's going to tell you something for a reason, right? right? And they're going to highlight the things they highlight for a reason, but then you have to put that together with what other people tell you and their reasons. And so it's almost like playing three dimensional chess. Very psychological. Yes. Well, it's like Lady Gaga didn't want to talk to Patrizia because she thought she would try and twist the narrative and say mm-hmm. how show how she wanted it to be portrayed. Sarah, in terms of morals with all the personalities and the behavior, is there or did you have any personal takeaways from all the saga? In so in what sense? More like be kind, don't murder someone, or like if maybe you didn't, but just like experiencing such a crazy story from beginning to end. Were there any takeaways you had from from that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the big one is money isn't everything, right? Because money in this case ended up being the divisive factor, not the mm-hmm. unifying factor. I mean, it was divisive for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see this relationship, you know, between Tom Ford and Domenico De Sole, who were both, um, you know, dedicated to turning Gucci around, but that brought them together mm-hmm. and they had such, they developed such a bond that they're still in business together today. I mean, right. they developed a level of, of trust and of understanding of each other that went beyond, you know, a familial relationship even. Mm-hmm. So definitely like money isn't everything. Be kind because you you can't really take words back. Right. Um, And as we saw in the case of the Gucci's, you know, not only were they fighting and throwing things at each other, but the the, the fact that they filed multiple lawsuits against each other meant that their whole family story, all their dirty laundry poured Uh, out into the public view. And so, you know, while there were certainly many other families going through conflicts, they weren't fighting them out in the courts. And so we don't Mm -hmm. know about them. Very, very good point. (laughs) Uh. What was it like being in Patrizia's trial? What was the room like? And will you also talk about the cages because of the mafia? (laughs) Whoa. So as I told you, I really, really was intent on being in the courtroom every day because I wanted to be there in person to see the expression, see who was there, the expressions on their faces, hear mm-hmm. the stories that they were telling. And, you know, the courtroom is is actually just a way, it's another way of telling a story, right? Because you get mm-hmm. the story from everybody's different perspective. And 
it was, I mean, the, the, the Gucci trial in Milan was equivalent on a level of uh, the OJ Simpson trial in the US. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody was completely riveted. Everybody was tuning into the evening news to see what had happened. Um, the stories were splashed all over the papers. So there was a tremendous amount of interest. And the courtrooms were always packed. The courtroom was always packed. And you know, just also for me, you know, being in this this courthouse, which is a huge hulking building in, in the center of Milan, it's a fascist architecture building. It's got you know kilometers of hallways and and doorways and and the, the, the clerks would wheel around like carts with all the, the legal files on them. Um, mm. It was a real scene. And, you know, every day, I mean. As the trial got got rolling, you know, Patrizia was in the courtroom for most of the time, and so, you know, I was I was watching her and and starting to gauge her reactions, and and her daughters were often in the courtroom. Her mother was often in the courtroom. So so there was a lot going on, and then um, you know, Italian um, courtrooms have a feature that is a bit shocking to us um, as Americans because we're not used to it. But because of the mafia trials, they have cages in the back of the room, which were for the defendants. And the idea was that if there was a defendant that was either considered particularly dangerous or a particularly high risk of, of flight, they wanted them in that cage. You know, because not only could they maybe hurt somebody, but others could come in from outside and try to get them, you know, spring them free and, you know, get them out. So um, in the case of the Gucci trial, the killer and the driver um, were in one of the cages and the other cage was empty. Um, but the irony is that since the courtroom was overflowing and there weren't enough seats for everybody, often the journalists ended up sitting in the other cage. So I spent many mm-hmm. days sitting in the cage myself. Oh, that is fascinating. I didn't realize that she she was in the cage by herself with with her driver. That, no, that no, the killer was the gunman, the man who shot. Uh, oh, the actual killer. I, I, yeah. see, I see. The one that actually. Yeah. He's yeah, in, and Patrizia, Patrizia was in the front. I mean, it was almost like, you know, they were like, like almost like pews, right? So okay. um, um, seats, long seats, benches, and Patrizia was in the front with her lawyers on either side. Okay, okay. that makes sense. Um, I love I love learning that about the mafia and the, the cages. That's really fascinating. One of the reasons I felt like some of this all got started with that family is that they were had different opinions about how to stay relevant. So I know that you've watched and you've researched and you've reported on some of the top luxury brands really in the world. You've seen their successes and their failures. And we do have a lot of um, entrepreneurs that listen to our podcast. And I was wondering if you had any advice for them on ways to to stay relevant or maybe warnings of what can happen for that to get away from you where you are no longer relevant? Really, really great question. And I think that's really like putting your finger on the pulse of what, how the fashion industry works and what are the the necessary ingredients because, you know, selling fashion and being successful at fashion is really about, 
persuading us as consumers to buy things that we don't really need, right? Because we all have plenty of clothes and bags and shoes. So it's about captivating our um, imaginations and giving us the idea that we need something because it's fresh, it's new, it's different, it's, it's chic, it's going to make us that, you know, kind of a person that we aspire to be. And so um, to me, like, the, if you're going to sell fashion, you have to have a story, an idea, um, a flavor mm-hmm. that's going to entice people and you have to be fresh. And so that's really hard because if you get something that's really good, but then you have to refresh it every six months, mm-hmm. you know, how do you do that without losing your identity and losing the mm-hmm. thing that was really good? It's, it's very, very tricky. Yeah. I so I, I interviewed Francois-André Pinot, who is now the CEO wow. of, of Caring, which owns the Gucci brand. And I asked him that question. How, how do you explain the success of Gucci after all these years and, and your mm-hmm. decisions to you know, name Alessandro Michele, the, the current mm-hmm. creative director? Mm-hmm. And he said that he had come to the conclusion that for, for a luxury brand to be relevant and successful on the market today, it has to constantly be able to express creativity. Ah. And I would say, if you look at Alessandro Michele's work and his campaigns and his fashions, he is just a volcano of creative ideas. Absolutely. There, I feel like there's a fine line between going off on some tangent that really doesn't have anything to do with the, the story of the brand and kind of losing people and then also staying creative with some sort of reference point to, you know, what the brand is all about. Yeah. And that's a very delicate balance. Well, I think he's done an amazing job. It'll be interesting to see how he, I think he's probably now in the process of, I don't want to say revamping, but you know, we've seen that look for quite a while now. So how he adds to that and maybe changes it up a little bit to, to make it fresh. All eyes are going to be on what he does next. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Sarah, what you're saying too, about how Alessandro has taken his approach to Gucci, creating this brand world that customers are invited into at every single touch point is something that I tell my brand consulting clients about and that they have to be unique and have this point of view which brands stay and go and go out of business mm-hmm. or and then randomly come back. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, one thing you may not know, we haven't told you yet. I studied abroad in Florence in college and mom and I, for some reason, we both just have this fascination and intense love and passion for Italy, Italians, all of it. So we were wondering, what is your favorite thing about Italian fashion? Oh, wow. Um, so the, my favorite thing about Italian fashion is this relaxed sense of style and ease. And it's not about wearing, you know, nine inch heels and tight dresses. It's really about looking great and feeling comfortable in your skin. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are the divas that do the big, you know, the dresses and the heels, mm-hmm. but, but the, the, the sense of the general sense of Italian style is more about being stylish and appropriate in every situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so 
it's it's really about also you know the quality of a shirt mm-hmm. you can see like the way the collar's turned up mm-hmm. or a beautiful suede you know driving shoe that just looks mm-hmm. great with a capri pant it's it's that kind of of ease but you know crispness and ease at the same time mm-hmm. i definitely agree and i I feel like it's sort of mature fashion, not meaning for older women. I mean, it's not sort of, I don't want to say silly, but it's not like romantic girly so much. It's sort of like this elegant woman that you just look at and say, how is that happening? Right. How did you don't even, it's about how to, yeah, it's about how to put things together. Right. It's about an understated, understated, not exasperated fashion. Exactly. It's magnificent. It really is. Mm. What have you learned from, from being around the Italians living there? Oh, so many things. Um, I'll tell you a story that answers that question in Mm -hmm. a way. And that's when we moved back to the States, my daughter was 14 Mm-hmm. And so she'd grown up um, her early childhood in Italy, and she had just started at a, at a big American public high school mm-hmm. and all very important experiences for her. And she comes home one day and she says, Mom, you know, the Americans, if they take an idea that they want to accomplish, they will stick to their path and like, never waver and get it done. Mm. Yeah, so the idea of just determination and, and goals. Mm-hmm. And she said, but the Italians, they really know how to live. Oh. And so oh, I said I to her, that. I said, honey, if you can if you can master both of those things, like right. on one hand, pursuing your dreams, but on the other hand, remember how to live. Yes. You've got yes. it all. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I read a book recently and they were talking about La Bella Figura. That's how they yes. pronounce it. La Bella um, Figura, yes. I, I, that's very important. Which I just love. I mean, I, I do think that's there is that lacking in America for sure. Um, and, and some people, you know, and a lot of people. <laughs> well, but Bella Figura is also, it's also kind of an unwritten set of rules that in mm-hmm. order to be appropriate, you have to do certain things. And I think one thing people don't realize, especially about the Milanese mm-hmm. um, social scene is that it's actually very scripted. And mm-hmm. if you kind of, you know, step outside, you know, you're kind of challenging a way of doing things. So it's not mm-hmm. like... It's not like all La Bella Vita where everything is easy and beautiful. (laughs) Right, right. But I do feel um, somewhat that in America, you know, a sense of decorum, some sense of politeness and most uh, manners and etiquette rules, you you know, have a, there's a reason for them. Yes. You know, serve a purpose. That's kind of gotten, gotten lost a little bit. And so... You know, it's, I was telling Delia, everybody watches these things like Bridgerton and Downton Abbey and everything. They dream about that, but then they don't really incorporate any of any of the, you know, the little bit more restrained behavior in their daily lives. They're still, you know, kind of running around in their sweatpants and, and maybe not being, you know, I don't know. It sounds like I'm saying be too reserved or something, but I do feel like 
it's such a fine balance. I mean, they, they live, they do have that joie de vivre, but they also, that elegance comes from, you know, not oversharing and not being so silly. I feel like, what do you think about that? Well, to me, there's, there's a lot to be said for first human kindness, as we were saying earlier. So even if you are, you know, hell bent on, finishing a project or getting something out of a meeting or delivering a report, like there's still room and space for being, being kind and being respectful of people. And that's important. And then there's also a lot to be said for taking care, like care of people's feelings, but also care of ourselves in terms of how we dress and how we eat and how we show up. And so I think Italians are very good at that, but I think that makes us, better people in a way because right. because self-care then is affects how you show up with other people yes so i think that i mean some people can say italians are overly focused on external appearances and sometimes that's true um oh. but to the extent that it shows care then i think that's important Right. And I think people don't remember that when you do take care of yourself and, you know, care about your appearance, not in an overly obsessive way, but it gives you some sense of uh, self-respect too. Um, And, you know, that the way you carry yourself, it just reflects that. Um, At the same time, I learned when you when you come here, you cannot judge people based on their appearance because that's so true. You know, there are a lot of very, very accomplished and and amazing people who don't take care of their appearance. And you can't. Yes. You can't miss that either. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sarah, will you tell us a little bit more about what your daughter meant when she said Italians know how to live? Yes, I think she meant like taking time to put the tablecloth on the table or Mm -hmm. to take a break and go have a cup of coffee with a colleague Mm -hmm. or, you know, taking a moment to sit and turn your face towards the sun. I mean, not necessarily, you know, fancy or expensive things, but Mm -hmm. taking time to live a good life and, Mm -hmm. and not letting the project or the goal or the ambition become the only principle by which you live. Right. Eating, standing up at your desk. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and what you find, if you practice that, that you actually can be, you may find unexpected benefits and you can actually be more productive. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think Italians may get stereotyped for, you know, not working as hard Mm-hmm. You know, as Americans, I, my experience is that is absolutely not true. And especially mm-hmm. living in Milan, you know, it was, it was mm-hmm. very much like living in America in terms of the work ethic and, mm-hmm. and even, you know, people working late nights and weekends and, mm-hmm. you know, but there's a way to work hard and still mm-hmm. take a breath and have a moment mm-hmm. with friends. And mm-hmm. so it's a, that's a balance, I guess. It's mm-hmm. more about achieving that balance. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. One of the things that's so interesting is that you actually personally met and knew Maurizio and Patrizia before pre-death and trial. So will you tell us about their style? What did you think about what they wore when you saw them? So Maurizio was incredibly 
charismatic and oh. handsome and charming. So he, and he was the one who pulled me into the, my decision to write the book. And he was very, he was very classic. So he was, mm-hmm. you know, suit and tie and camel coat and the aviator glasses. Um, he wore his hair kind of long in the back, you know, on his neck, but very, very charming and kind of wanted to make you feel comfortable in his presence. He was not um, full of himself. He was not austere. He was very like, come on, sit down, you know, tell me, tell me, you know, he was, mm-hmm. he was very engaging. Um, and his vision for Gucci was a very classic kind of almost mm-hmm. old school luxury, you know, mm-hmm. the round and brown, the horse mm-hmm. horse images, um, he wanted he wanted Gucci to be like Hermes mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, Patrizia was the, you know, the glam and the flash. And uh, when I went to interview her in 1993 in her luxury penthouse apartment in Piazza San Babila, I, I remember particular she had two um, matching couches facing each other and they were like a cream colored background with pink and blue and yellow patterns on them. Um, so very colorful and kind of, mm. I guess that was sort of the, the style at the time. And she was more simply dressed than I had seen her in photographs, but I knew from, from photos and from, from my interviews mm-hmm. that she, she was really all about like wearing Chanel head to toe. Mm. And the jewelry and the shoes and the makeup. And she she was very her style was very, you know, contrived. It was not Mm -hmm. she was not somebody who was trying to achieve natural beauty. She Mm -hmm. had the hair, you know, hair teased and the big Mm -hmm. eyelashes and the the dark. Mm -hmm. She one of her her signatures was she had the dark lip liner around her lips Mm -hmm. and then the paler shade of lipstick. Um, so her style was much, much more glam and flash than Maurizio's mm-hmm. was. Yeah, that's interesting that they, I guess they got together at a time when they saw more things eye to eye, but that certainly changed. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the recent trip to Florence and the private tour of the archives. Oh, that was amazing. Um, so the first visit we did in the morning was we went to the Gucci Museum, um, which they have opened on Piazza della Signoria in, in Florence. Um, so right on that square where the Uffizi are, where the David is. And it was an incredible exhibit which celebrated the 100th anniversary of Gucci. And that's where I really saw the creativity of Alessandro Michele, because it was every room was based on one of his ad campaigns for Gucci. And, you know, one couldn't one room couldn't have been more different than the next, but all Mm -hmm. captivating, some interactive, uh, all very colorful and lots to see there. And then in the afternoon, we got the private tour to the archive, which is now housed in the historic workshop on Via delle Caldaie, which I describe in the book. And that used to be the main artisans uh, workshop where they all made all the bags. Right. And that was incredible because when I started the book, I had started also working with the archivist that Gucci had hired at the time, and they were just starting to build the archive. And she was collecting both documents. Mm -hmm. So like the papers of the incorporation of the first store, she had those. And she was also collecting pieces. 
And so now all of those pieces that have been collected over 20 years are filling up this this building, beautiful old building in, in Florence. And it was everything from the early uh, pieces of luggage that had the early fabric. It was a monogram fabric, but it was the precursor to the GG mm-hmm. logo. It was a series of interconnecting brown diamond shapes mm-hmm. that were on a like a straw colored background. And that was the first you know, Gucci mm-hmm. fabric. And they have a piece there. So that was incredible mm-hmm. to see. And then one of the other pieces that made me smile was um, the famous Aldo's famous phrase, a quality will be remembered long after price is forgotten. Mm -hmm. And he used to say that to his customers in the store when maybe they were hesitating over Mm -hmm. buying a very expensive handbag. (laughs) And he had that um, phrase uh, embossed in gold letters on leather plaques. And he had those set around the store in strategic locations. Mm -hmm. And they have several of those plaques in the archive. And, you know, as you remember in the movie, Al Pacino, when he's kind of Mm -hmm. explaining to Patrizia what the family business is all about, he he utters that line, quality will be remembered long after price is forgotten. Right. Definitely remember that. The whole thing has been so fascinating. And the way that um, that archivist that you were talking about, the way she was hunting down these old pieces and I mean, that that's such an interesting you know, job in itself. Right. Well, and these are really the crown jewels of the brand. And so that's one reason why they wouldn't let me take any photographs. Uh-huh. And I can see from Alessandro Michele's work that he has been going through the archive because you see things coming out on the runway mm-hmm. that were, were pulled from the archive. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I bought myself a a Gucci velvet jacket to wear to the London premiere. And it mm-hmm. has kind of a, a modern um, pattern on it, which is interlocking uh, horse bits and kind of a stylized mm-hmm. print. And it's, mm-hmm. it's orange and brown and green. And one of my sources who had been Maurizio Gucci's secretary saw a photo of me on the red carpet in that jacket. And she sent me a little message on the side. She said, Sarah Rodolfo had a jacket that was exactly like that. Oh my goodness. That Isn't that is- amazing? So yes, that really that, does give me that just like, I don't know where they got the idea, but whether, whether there was a piece, you know, there was a piece in the archive that Alessandro was inspired by, but you know, it was very connected to, to the family and to the family design. So, so I thought you know, they're really, the fact that they have those iconic products and that they're re um, reinventing them and resurfacing them is, is really fascinating. It is. And that's a good example of staying relevant but with reference to who the brand is, exactly. I'm looking at a picture of you in the jacket right now. It is fabulous. You look fabulous. The jacket is uh, just oh, amazing. I mean, that was a whole other fashion moment when I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be on the red carpet. What am I going to wear? I know. <laughs> and you've got the Gucci shoes. Just love it so much. Are those the Gucci slingbacks? Or are those they... are the Gucci slingbacks. Yes. yes. I just got a pair for a client. That is so funny. That exact pair. Oh. I was like, you know, so girls, should, 
a girl should have these problems, right? But I'm not used to having these problems. Then, right? You know, the stars have their their you know style machines that yes. do action. But uh, I was just me. Right. <laughs> so. Well, you did a perfect job. I give you a ten out of ten, and Thank you'll wear you. those things for the rest of your life forever. Yes, most definitely. And I'm sure your daughter will want to be wearing them too. Oh, she'll we'll probably get everything. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. Sarah, we're wondering what's next for you. We hear that you are writing now about tech and we're really hoping that you can help these tech people become a little bit. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. So I'm, I'm fascinated. I I joke. I said, I've I've traded Gucci, Armani, Prada for Google, Amazon, Facebook. Um, (laughs) As you can see, I'm very, very intrigued by the brands that touch our lives. And and now, Mm -hmm. you know, technology is almost, you know, trumped fashion in a way because it's in our homes, it's on our wrists, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And technology does so much for us. And especially during the pandemic has allowed us to work and play and stay connected. And at the same time, in, you know, 30 years, there's been no, no regulation. There's no rules of the road. I mean, we, we drive cars, we have licenses, we, we follow mm-hmm. uh, traffic signals, but in the tech world, there's, there's hardly anything um, that protects the consumer, mm-hmm. that protects your data, that mm. tells companies what they need to do in order to play. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very in, focused on, on that process and, and how, how we're going to create a safer space in the technology world. Oh, well, you make it all sound so much more interesting than I thought it would be to me. You know, I I was thinking, why would she leave fashion for that? Not that you've left it forever, but that makes so much sense. And the idea that tech is familiar to us is putting on our clothes. I mean, we put on our clothes, but we have to make sure we have our phone or right now we're on our computers or whatever. So that's so interesting. Well, I can't wait to read your works as you go along with this. This will be on Bloomberg or you're going to write a book. Well, this is on Bloomberg now. Um, I am researching ideas for another book and I, and I do feel that there's a book, another book here, but uh, I'm not sure yet. I wouldn't say that I have uh, I don't have Mm -hmm. a title (laughs) or, or or, or chapter outline. (laughs) Well, we'll be reading it. I can assure you of that, whatever it's about. (laughs) You're a wonderful writer. Where can people find you and the book? So there, I have a website, which is sarahgayforden.com, and that goes into also some of the stories behind the book. And there's a page mm-hmm. that has links to all the different booksellers. You know, mm-hmm. they're the obvious, uh, you know, Amazons and, mm-hmm. and um, other booksellers. I also have the local bookseller in D.C. That's my preferred local mm-hmm. bookseller because I think it's important to promote mm-hmm. bookstores. Um, I'm also on Instagram where I'm actually telling a story that you and your listeners might like, which is the, the scenes behind the story. So key locations in the book. Mm-hmm. And so I go to the key locations like the restaurant uh, Santa Lucia, where Maurizio courted Patrizia or um, mm-hmm. the headquarters that he opened in Milan or the uh, luxury apartment on Corso Venezia, where he moved in with, Paola and then later Patrizia kicked out Paola and moved in. So, <laughs> so you can see actually these places um, on my Instagram. It's at Sarah Gay Forden. 
We will definitely include links to those as well as the book in the show notes. Sarah, one thing when I was listening to a YouTube interview that you did that I have either not known or forgotten that the horse bit, they just kind of made that up. It's not like Hermes where they Mm -hmm. made some things. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yes, that whole horse bit motif and the the red and green stripe, um, the the sort of the saddlery images, that all was the brainchild of Aldo Gucci, who was really the like premier marketing man before there was actually marketing in this business. And he felt that they needed sort of some more uh, flavor of elegance and nobility. So he came up with the story that the Gucci's had been saddlers to to the nobles um, mm-hmm. in, in Florence. And it really caught on. And, and, and all of these um, images kind of naturally worked with the brand, you know, in the bags and the shoes. Um, but it was all a, cr- a complete fabrication of Aldo. I mean, I love it. It's not authentic, but I mean, it works. Everybody loved it. And it, it was believable. Really yeah. <laughs> and this, the San Vittore, is that how you say that? Yes. And what what was that? Is that the prison where she lived? Yes, yeah, San Vittore is the prison, and it's right in downtown Milan. And it's, it's very old. It's um, from the 1800s. Oh. And it was actually modeled after one of the first prisons, which was in Philadelphia. So it's actually modeled after oh. an American prison. Well, it's not very pretty looking at the Instagram, (laughs) right? I don't remember seeing it in Milan, but probably I just didn't even notice it because it's not, you know, compared to the other buildings. And it's behind walls mostly. I mean, and it's kind of on Ah. on the, on the Southwestern side of town. Ah, I gotcha. Okay. Oh, this has been so fascinating. I know. I mean, we could just talk to you for days. (laughs) Well, you have great questions. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been great talking with both of you. Thank you so much. We enjoyed every single minute and I'm enjoying every single minute of the book. And we, of course, adored the movie as well. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great talking with both of you. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.